You're listening to Defence Research, a podcast on enhancing defence capability through groundbreaking research. Welcome listeners to Defence Research, a podcast that explores defence research as an instrument of national power here in Australia. And I'm your host, uh, Paul Madison, a Director of the Defence Research Institute at the University of New South Wales. I'm very, very pleased today uh, to have as a guest in the studio, Dr. Mark Hodge. Um, Mark is the Chief Executive Officer of DMTC, which is an acronym of its original name, the Defence Materials Technology Centre. And Mark has been the CEO since DMTC's inception in 2008 and has overseen the organization's success in a range of activities centred on Australia's defence and national security innovation ecosystem. He's a tireless advocate. He's known for being a tireless advocate for science and technology and its applications in building industrial capacities geared to enhancing the protection and capability of our defense forces and those engaged in the national security space. Mark serves on a range of advisory boards, committees, and panels, including the Department of Defense's Innovation Steering Group. Mark, thanks for coming on the show. Paul, thanks. I'm delighted to be here, and thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, it's great to see you, mate. Indeed. Look, Mark... um, you know, given you've built your your career and, and DMT success through many years of persistent engagement across the defense innovation ecosystem in, with universities, with industries, primes, SMEs, with many officials of several governments over the years, I'm assuming that you're pretty well known to our listeners. So let's start with something perhaps they've they may not know. T- tell us a bit about yourself, your background, and 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 maybe you know something that you think our listeners may not know that they would find of interest about Dr. Mark Hodge? Wow. Well, there's plenty they probably don't know, whether they find it interesting or not, I suppose, is another matter. (laughs) Um, I I grew up in country Victoria. Um, I I started my academic career as a dentist, actually. And uh, I think if anybody who does know me would know that these hands aren't going to fit in too many people's mouths. So I I saw the light fairly quickly, um, engineering qualification. Uh, initially started at Melbourne University and uh, switched across to Monash with uh, with a materials engineering focus. Um, so background of the career there, I, I went straight through to my PhD, um, straight from there into an academic posting, which uh, I think probably mutually was agreed by myself and the academic uh, community was, was probably not where my talents lay, lay the, the most, although I did love it and I ended up in a private defence-focused R&D outfit in the US for, for about six years, um, which was where I met my wife, who, who's joined me here in Australia. Um, I came back and ran a technology commercialisation program for John Brumby in the Victorian government, and it was out of that that, that I started up a, a commercialisation entity for that worked very closely with DSTO, as it was then, mm. um, and, and looked to commercialise defence technology, and uh, ended up being selected as the inaugural CEO of DMTC. In terms of what people don't know about me, um, as I say, I, if you have a look at my, my Twitter handle, if you like, it, it, it says I'm a, um, I'm a husband and a father, um, a bad sports coach or an even worse musician, and I, I brew beer and I travel. So uh, I keep myself pretty busy with... Uh, my, my children are at a, of an age where I do a lot of sports coaching and a lot of, um, lot of engagement with community back in Melbourne and, uh, and, and quite enjoy it. So, oh, very good. Thanks. Go. Yeah. So I have to ask you, being a, a Melbourne or a Victorian, so who do you bear it for? 
Well, um, I, I am afflicted with the Collingwood curse, um, <coughs> so they've probably just had about three quarters of your listeners turn off. Um, <laughs> but the, I will say, and we're going to talk about perhaps a little bit about diversity later, we have hired about four Carlton supporters in DMTC, so we're fully committed to diversity. <laughs> Very good. So as a, uh, as a, as a newly minted Essendon supporter, I guess I can't come to you for a job. <laughs> Certainly not after that last uh, match a couple of weeks ago. So, look, I had no idea you had uh, started off as a dentist, and I certainly wouldn't be uh, coming to you as, as, <laughs> for a root canal, but an impressive background. Thanks for sharing that. And, and what was your thesis in, uh, out of curiosity? Uh, in the PhD, it was it was a very specific one, as they all tend to be. It, was, it actually started off looking at a way of trying to develop high-strength fibres, polymer fibres, that would be able to dissolve in water at a very over a very specific temperature range, right? And it was sponsored by the Wool Corporation. Um, we had a problem back in the day with uh, with hay baling twine contaminating the wool, and it was a several billion dollar export problem. Um, and I solved it, but they moved to round bales, and so it never got implemented. And that okay. was an early lesson in in uptake of technology. For me. Excellent. Yeah, and I can see how that would have informed yeah. your sort of views around research and academia. And, and collaboration and commercialization yeah, as you move forward. So look, let's um, let, let's turn to you on DMTC then. Sure. So, 2008. So that's uh, that's quite a journey um, that where you have been in charge. Let, let's go back to 2008. You sure. know, what, what was it uh, that drove the stand up of the DMTC then? What what was the mission? What was the uh, the intent? And and how did you sort of step off on the journey? Sure. So I'm, the first thing to say is I'm hired help. I, I didn't have uh, any real, really significant input into the conceptualization of the bid. But it, if we can go back and perhaps a bit of a bit of a policy lesson or policy history lesson, uh, Brendan Nelson, who used to be the science minister in in Australia, listeners will probably remember, then took up a role in the defence portfolio, hmm. and as the science minister, he had the Cooperative Research Centre program and uh, was quite liked the, the model and suggested, well, we're going to have these now in the, in the defence portfolio. And the DFCTC, the Defence Future Capability Technology Centre program, was stood up. There was a, a competitive round and the consortium that, uh, that won was the Defence Materials Technology Centre. Uh, and I was, um, I was brought on as the CEO. As, you know, there was a, a, a cast far and wide sort of thing for, for the cooperative for the uh, for the CEO role and I was um, successful I remember saying to my wife at the time if if somebody else gets this job they will have a really good candidate because it just seemed tailor-made for my my background in materials um, the work in government the work in industry in the United States the materials background and so on and so forth um, back in the day it was thought I think that the DFCTC would be a, a kind of a mirror program in defence uh, alongside the Cooperative Research Centre program. But uh, students of history will remember that was when the global financial crisis hit. And so in the event, DMTC was the, the first and only organisation that was stood up under that program. Okay. Um, and so we were we kicked off with a, with a block-funded grant. We had industrial partners and foundation research partners and some programs that we were supposed to deliver, and we did deliver. Um, and then... Along the way, Defence came to us and said, you know, we, we kind of like this this model and, and we think that there are things that, uh, other things that it could do. And so we, we did some work with Defence to work out how the model might, might adapt and evolve on the understanding that there would certainly not be more block funding, as it were, the, the, the standard sort of grant funding. <clears throat> 
And there were a couple of key things that happened to us along the way that I think enabled that that thinking. And, and one was um, the work we did with the DiggerWorks organisation, which was um, which was really critical. Um, and that that showed us that, that we could adapt the model quite quickly to certainly materials technologies, but also almost a technology agnostic approach that looked at the capability requirements as they were evolving in real time. Uh, and, and put together an industrial research technology-driven consortium to address specific problems or specific requirements and, and small R requirements that, that came out of theatre. And, and there was a spiral acquisition thing that was going on at the time where we would speak to um, uh, speak to people who had just come back out of theatre from their six-month rotation and say, you know, how's your kit? What, what do you need? And it would be a broad statement of requirement like it's too heavy or it's too bulky or I'm, I'm running out of juice for my radio too quickly. And so we would then, we put that through a process with um, with the DiggerWorks organisation, Counter-IED Task Force Army, the DMO as it was then, DST Group. Yeah. Um, and just a prioritisation process of saying, well, which, which activities do we want to work on and, and how can we address those challenges? Um, and, and then DMTC would go and find the industrial partners and the research capability to put together the bespoke teams that, that really needed to work on those issues. And, and it was quite a successful program. Uh, and, and that was really, I think, the genesis of how we transitioned from that block-funded organisation into what's now just an ongoing entity. Our role now is less about the technology and more about finding a match for the requirement and, and what is the appropriate technology to bring in. So we've... We still have a, a large, I would say, a large proportion of our work is broadly in the materials and manufacturing, and there are there are reasons for that. That some of them are legacy reasons about relationships, but also a lot a lot of it has to do with it's a it's a technology area that tends to lend itself to collaboration. Um, but more recently, we've we've taken on a range of additional technical areas, and the obvious one, of course, is medical countermeasures and health security, but also some technology in the ISR area um uh some some artificial intelligence even and, and we you know a, a whole bundle of other things that that come along and it's really about application of that collaboration model that, so, that is the key so one success is beget more successes and, and you've sort of grown the portfolio over time yeah but going going back to 2008 what, what, what specifically was the capability gap that folks were getting after with dmtc was there a, a perception that industry was not um, integrated well enough into the, you know, the, the, the force development uh, process, you know, in, in terms of the services defining requirements, uh, re- refining those requirements based on operational ex- experience, and then that, that transition t- to industry where the call goes out and, and there's, a, there's a coalescing around um, what those solutions might be. What, so were, were you set up to be a, to be a bridge? I think so, and <clears throat> pardon me. And I think there was some broad, uh, there was some broad pain points, if I can put it that way, in some of the programs. Um, and some of those pain points were coming from from the program officers themselves through DSTO, as it was then. But I think also, really, it came through from um, from our industrial partners, who who were looking at ways of, frankly. Leveraging, ex- leveraging and accelerating the, their R&D investments to improve outcomes for, the, for themselves, of course, and, and for the customer, um, 
but in a again a, in an accelerated manner. And, and if I can perhaps pick on Talis as a res, as an example, Talis was selling the Bushmaster. The Bushmaster was, as we know, a, a fine vehicle. There were a few a few tweaks and, and improvements that they were looking to make and would have made. Uh, but I think they saw the collaboration model as a bit of a force multiplier in terms of how to how to in, in improve that. Um, and there's in materials there's a time temperature superposition um, phenomena. I think translated to commercial, it's a time money superposition thing. And 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 also collaboration does that gives you that one plus one equals three approach. Um, and and I think it was also an opportunity that the that the defence and industrial sector saw to to get the best of everything rather than rather than be tied into one university or one research institution or one industrial player it's just how can we we work together so i, I don't think it, it, we were stood up as part of the industry policy um and and that has that has remained and i think it's in, it's a really interesting question you pose because you know 14 years ago there's quite a bit's changed um you know we were we were in Afghanistan, Iraq around about then. There were um, there were a lot of different geopolitical pressures that, that were coming to the fore. There was still very much a sense, I think, of buying what has been proven overseas. And I think what we did see, particularly in, in theatre, was that Australianisation of some of these solutions is really, really critical. And you might get the 80% solution by buying military off the shelf, but... Australian concept of operations, um, Australian requirements might be might be such that that we do need to do a little bit of tweaking for the local use case and these types of things. And so I think it was really a, a tweak of that, and and perhaps also a recognition that DSTO's role was very much as the um, as the scientific leader and someone that would have to render advice on um, technical risk for any acquisitions and those sorts of things. But ultimately, that technical solution would need to be delivered through acquisition by industry, and there were some gaps in that chain that were identified that we were one of many, I think, um, uh, initiatives that were stood up around the same time. There was also the Defence Industry Innovation Centre, which became... Um, the CDIC, which is which is more recently rolled into the Office of Defence Industry yep. Support, um, yep. and, and these types of things. So there were a few different different elements of that story that were being put together at the same time. Okay. Um, we recently had Professor Tanya Monroe on the show, mm-hmm. uh, the Chief Defence Scientist, and she um, she, she she highlighted uh, her role as Defence's Capability Manager for Future Capability and Innovation. Um, so I'm assuming that your relationship with DSTO and now DST Group has been sort of uh, a, a primal um, r- a relationship for you to yeah, to, to nurture so. and build. And, and, and so is that your sort of main um, portal in, into defense in terms of uh, identifying future requirements and then uh, work, working with universities and industry to kind of drive solutions across the... The, uh, the the TRLs and into commercialization. I wouldn't say it's our main one. It's certainly um, it's certainly one of them. Um, it, it's one of the important ones. Uh, DST has always had and will always have an important role in in, in guidance and and in in some ways oversight and sometimes contracting and sometimes customer. So so DST has to wear a lot of different hats and and those hats sometimes the 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 amount of of effort in in each area has has evolved and shifted um 
as things do in defence with um, with policy, with time uh, and so on. But um, we've had a number of relationships directly with the services, um, directly with uh, with DMO and with and more recently with CASG in the, for example, the maritime domain, land, um, and uh, but DST is always uh, and always will be a, a really important, a really important stakeholder and client. And, and Tanya, I think in particular, uh, her predecessor was also quite open to to collaboration and, and working outside Tanya's really taken that and uh, and her role as as capability manager has has really I think been a game changer and she's uh, we're actually very lucky to have her um, as a as, as a leader in this area and, and she's 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 really continued that that culture change and, and driven that um, driven that sense of engagement and DST's evolving role in in sort of the the coordinator manager and overseer of all these sorts of efforts but it's an understanding that that there is a scientific and industrial and innovation capability that sits outside DST it's quite proper that DST manages and supervises but it can't do everything on its own and frankly it would be a waste of effort um, there'd be a lot of capability that's not on the field if you're not you're engaging with the UNSWs of, of the yeah. world and, and with that academic sector and, and yeah. so on. So, I mean, we've grown from an initial five university partners, so I think we're up to 26 now. And, and when I say university partners, they are partners that we're actively working with. They're not just, a, you know, an agreement on a page somewhere. So it's, uh, you know, and again, evolving towards where is that capability and, and a lot of that's been guided through those DST relationships. Yeah, so... At UNSW, we're thrilled to be an active partner with with you. As are we. Yeah. And uh, <coughs> pardon me. And I agree with what you're having to say about uh, about Tanya, bit of a, a masterclass in transformational Indeed. Um, yeah. leadership, and pivoting that organization out towards industry, out towards uh, academia, and towards international partners, all with a view to accelerating that concept of capability cycle. Um, so, so look, let let's. I understand that you've just moved into a new headquarters uh, in in uh, in Melbourne. Obviously, you've grown uh, over the years. Uh, t- t- tell us how DMTC is is organized. You know, sure. And, uh, tell how many folks do you have working with you, and what kind of people do you attract into DMTC? Um, well, I think we attract the best people to DMTC. We have, and it's a it's an interesting question, and it depends on how you answer how you answer it. There's there are two different ways. So. We have, when everybody's in the office and everybody from the satellite, from the interstate offices turn up, we've, we've got 26 people. Um, but that's tw- that 26 people are people that sort of, that are the, the DMTC employees. The effort is, is north of 400 people uh, on any given time. So DMTC at any time runs between 30 and 35 R&D projects. Then um, It's nationwide. Each of them is collaborative. Each of them involves research in uh, research partners, industrial partners, and so the the staff, the twenty six, are the people who who manage that. The, from the project management, the national security, the conceptualization, the the integration of the of the work package to make sure that it makes sense to all of the different stakeholder groups in those projects. Um, Depending on the year we're looking at, uh, or depending on the project load, we're looking at somewhere between 150 and 200, maybe 180, 200 full-time equivalents. And those are drawn from our partner organisations, as you would know from UNSW, who sometimes are provided to us, sometimes we pay for, and sometimes it's a mix, and that's that collaboration model. So, um, so yeah, 
in terms of FTE, as I, as I say, about 150, 180-ish. But at any given time, you're looking at 400 sort of 400 plus warm bodies working on um, across those 30, 35 different projects nationwide. Thanks. So, can you talk a bit about those projects? I mean, how, how are you? How are you organized in terms of you know maritime, air, yeah. and land? That you you mentioned um, the, the the health sector is increasingly yeah. important to you. Yeah. So we. We we started with with four program themes and and that we still broadly organise ourselves around those those program themes and that might be air might be land might be sea, um, we've and then over time as you've mentioned health security we picked up um, uh, it was a bit of a of a let's see if this works from for again and you you asked about DST Dodge DST and CSIRO that came to us and said you know we we've decided we want to work together in this area can DMTC please manage this interaction for us because of the national security elements and so on so that was a program in and of itself in in medical countermeasures um, over time the the messaging from DST and from defence changed from can DMTC do this more to how much of this can DMTC do and I think there were quite appropriate questions posed to us and this has driven the move out of a smaller office into uh, into a more fit for, for purpose facility. Um, how much of this can DMTC do and can we scale the program management um, model appropriately? The way we've chosen to do that is is when a theme of activity reaches a, a couple of um, internal checkpoints that we have set up that are around, I suppose, contract security, um, the the notional impact that it would be making on the defence customer and the national security um, outcomes that we, we look for, we'll then take the decision to set up uh, and formally constitute a business division in DMTC. Okay. It's wholly owned. It's it's not a separate business number or anything like that. So it can still operate under all of our quality um, frameworks, national security frameworks, but it... it brings on a particular sort of management structure in and of itself that that we will then hire a head of division, we'll bring in an advisory panel to make sure that that, that group is, is being appropriately advised. That's a way of, of our board ensuring that it has all the advice that it needs in terms of opportunity and risk and so on. So going forward, we would see that that's, that's how the DMTC activity will scale. There'll be divisions stood up, but prior to that, we we've have... Uh, a lot of, uh, we call them themes, so at the moment there's a maritime theme, there's an ISR theme, there's an industrial capability development theme, there's a land theme, um, that we can stand up, we can grow, we can shrink back again depending on on the requirements of, of the customer group. What we don't want to get is into a situation where we have particular technical mouths to, to feed because the answer will always be how what we can do to what what technology we have is the answer to your question, no matter what the question was. Right. So uh, the staff in DMTC are highly technical, but they're program managers, they're, they're generalists, and they can look at again what is the capability requirement and how do we put the bespoke team together to to address that, and then we'll manage that. And so we'll have somebody that might be involved in running a land program. And then if we see, and we did see for a little while, that, that, that ramped back and then we see it it's starting to grow again with things like Land 400 and, and these types of things. Um, 
we're seeing the demand for that increase. And, and so those people will then come back into that area. We had a really large air program in the early stages when we were bringing the JSF online and we were looking at some of the manufacturing challenges around the vertical tail with BAE Systems and this supply chain yep. as a client. That's a delivered capability now. So the, the focus on that shifts onto, you know, what are the sustainment challenges? And it's a particular issue because of the it's a global supply chain and it's part yep. of a part of the nine nation thing, as you would be aware, of course. So there are th- some things Australian industry can do, there are some things Australian industry can't. And we just have to understand those those constraints before we stand up a program. So at the moment our air program is reasonably small, although it is a bit of a back to the future thing here, it is growing back in and we've got a hypersonics activity that we've just announced or a high temperature materials that we've just announced with Quickstep, for example. And that's picking up on an older capability that was but that was shrunk back in response to the to the defence requirements there of uh, probably five or six years ago. And then with the GUIO capabilities, you're looking at, um, a, at a refreshed need for DMTC to step into that there. So, You mentioned Quickstep. It's a company that we're, our uh, hypersonics researchers at UNSW are working with as well, um, including uh, the, the Defense Trailblazer program, which is just getting underway, and I know you're aware of that. And yeah. We've talked about it before, and we might have a chance to talk about it here, but let's let's go back t- to you. So, so, so it's 2022. Mm-hmm. You've been running DMTC for 14 years, and that in itself is pretty extraordinary. So <laughs> congratulations, Mark, and you've grown a very successful enterprise and what you're describing for our listeners here is that you've fully sort of cemented yourself as a key node in the uh, strategic um, defense innovation ecosystem Um, and and that's that's pretty extraordinary and I think is a great model for other like-minded nations to to study and um, uh, and emulate so those the geostrategic settings that we're living in today quite quite interesting we've got something interesting going on uh, as we speak in the taiwan strait um great power competition um the, the the war in ukraine um it all speaks to a government's uh, both both sides of, of 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 government um driving towards greater sovereign capability and mm-hmm. and, and talking about acceleration um so, so Given you've been so deeply entrenched in 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 the in the system here in Australia for for so long, you know, what is your assessment of where we are in terms of um, identifying systemic impediments, whether they're cultural or regulatory or uh, other, to getting on with that business of of accelerating, so that we can actually um, continue to drive hard across the from fundamental research across the the, the, the valley of death and into mm. uh, test and evaluation and, and commercialization and, and scaling up to sovereign manufacture aligned <coughs> to strategic priority pull through uh, all with a view and I know you share this view to to ensuring that we c- can get the right capability into the hands of ADF operators so that they can sustain that competitive advantage in, in an all domain yeah. operating environment so g- given you know the complexity of all that you know you're you've been you've been fully entrenched here for for a while you, you what, what do you see as as the things we really need to get after strategically to to get the job done better yeah it's a it's a great question and if it was an easy one it would have been solved but uh, first thing i would say is i don't think i don't think anybody does it perfectly 
um, often the US has held up as a, as a great example of, of how to do it. And of course, there's always stories of, of where where it's done well, but there's for every story where it's done well, there's stories where it hasn't been. Um, I think, I don't think there's any one model, is my answer. And, and to come back to your, your opening part of it, from a personal perspective, yep, been here 14 years, wake up every morning, can't wait to get to work. I mean, it's the role has changed and it continues to evolve and it refreshes. And so I've had no trouble um, with motivation. I've had no trouble with imagination and those sorts of things. And um, and you, you've kindly said that we've, we've done a, a reasonably good job. I would say having the right people in place has, has been a, a really critical element of that. Um, as to the geopolitical stuff, I mean, the big one, of course, was the pandemic. Yes. Um, you know, we saw that very, very quickly, very rapidly, the phone would start to ring on my desk, which was very quickly set up as a spare bedroom in the house because we were all on lockdown from senior people in defence saying, we need you to, to step into this. What can DMTC do to help? Because I think having the tools at your disposal uh, from a customer perspective, from a from a practitioner perspective, from the defence stakeholder point of view and then from the industrial point of view, Having them at your disposal and have them having them working and have them having them ready is absolutely key. And what we've often said is, from the pandemic perspective, if you didn't have something like the DMTC, and there were plenty of others, MTP Connect was a huge, huge contributor in this area. But in that defence national security space, having the DMTC as a tool that Tanya Monroe could use, that um, that the Def- that Joint Health Command could use. And having those relationships and those structures and everything set up and having the capability there and available was absolutely critical. We did not have time to invent it from a green, from a clean sheet of paper or from a greenfield site. The other one that's obvious is AUKUS. Um, we're all, we're sort of, I think, broadly midway through that 18-month period of, of discernment, if you like, and finding out what does that, what do the various um, agreements in terms of intellectual property... Uh, government-to-government sharing of, of data, of operational requirements, these types of things, um, things like ITAR come into it, you know, how is that going to be pulled together? And, and such a fundamental, profound change in the way Australia is going to do business. And, of course, the nuclear submarines one is the one that always gets, the, the nuclear-powered submarines one is always the one that gets the, the, the press. But as you would know, it's it's far from the only element of AUKUS. There are there are so many other elements, and Guio's one of them. There's going to be autonomy. There's a oh, you know we haven't got time to go through them all. Yeah. You don't just put you don't just flick a switch on something like that. I think if they made me king for a day, one of the things I would do would be to to make sure that you're actually looking at not just how do we build products and how do we build kit to respond to what our customers need but how do we keep blood flow to the capability in the ecosystem because as you well know requirements change um, operational requirements change risks change theatre changes all the time in, in, in defence <coughs> pardon me so if you've lined up on a particular target and that three or four months in is no longer the target. You need the capability to be able to shift. And if you've been all in on fixing that target, which I think some commercialisation models do, we are going to build this product with this venture capital response, with these people, 
and then all of a sudden the customer says, actually, our needs have changed and we, we needed to do something different or we don't need it at all anymore. That's an all-or-nothing response, and it has its place. It has its place. But it needs to be balanced, in my humble view, with with a broader capability equation where you've actually got more of a 30,000-foot view saying, well, we know, we know power is going to be important. We know, and this is the sovereign industrial capability discussion, these are the industrial capabilities that we need to have. We might not know what the delivery vector and the exact commercial solution looks like. That's up to our industrial partners to deliver in response to an acquisition opportunity anyway. But the underpinning capabilities that sit behind that are the networks, are the relationships, are the the levels of trust that we have between our academic partners, between our SMEs and our supply chain and our prime contractors, who once they actually start working together, get to know what each other's capabilities are, can test each other out so the primes know which which SMEs really can deliver. Um, we We start to test our muscles around things like nation of origin and, and in intellectual property management in um, who can work on US and UK programs, th- these types of things. So I think what we do in our business, it's very, very much about supporting the practitioners. And I, I've got younger children at home, and how do you explain what you do to, to a kid? And what I say is we protect them so that they can protect us. And that's that's really the role, I think, is, is how do we how can we make sure that we're ready to go very, very quickly and we're not saying, okay, who do I call? What agreement structures are we going to have? What's the model look like? Who's going to be running this? In a DMTC-like environment, we know. We know who's going to be doing the program management. There's no threat to the industrial partners because they're the ones who are going to deliver the solution anyway. The research partners get to do their research. The DMTC role is in that coordination and, and bringing those different messages and different success definitions together in that environment where we have a reasonable level of understanding of what the defence customer needs. That's a great answer. Um, when I wore a uniform and I was leaving the house in the morning and the kids were there, I'd always say, uh, Dad's off to save the free world. And, and, <laughs> and the kids would laugh. And, but it's, it's just one of those family things. And I, 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 what you're really speaking to is, is shared culture, shared values. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, there's so many different cultures that come together to generate uh, for operational effect f- for the ADF. I mean, even the ADF has, has a number of cultures that constitute itself. And then yeah. there's, there's, there's that public service culture within defense. There's the national security agenda, the whole of government, the state, academia. And, it's, it, and bringing all that together. Yeah, um, and it's dynamic too because yeah, yeah. the cultures, as you would know as a senior officer, the, the cultures of a group within defense can vary depending, and, and in, not just defense, any organization, yeah. will vary depending on the leader. And will vary yeah. depending on the time, and yeah. so DMTC's role very much is part of understanding, or at least having a view of of what what the culture is and what the requirements of that particular officer or that particular group or that particular yeah. at that particular time may be. Yeah. And we may have been told something two years ago, but that that may have shifted. Yeah. So 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 let's talk about one um, w- one really important component because I work for the University of New South Wales. Um, in in that defense triangle, so you have you have defense, you have defense industry, and you have academia. And in my view, the the one undercooked line there is 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 academia. But it's it's I think academia is really on the rise here in Australia yeah. in terms of um, pivoting towards the 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 defense um, problem set. 
um, you know, we, we see the Australian um, uh, Defence and Security University Network, you know, the va- various state networks. So UNSW is part of the Defence Innovation Network, mm-hmm. nine universities um, funded by the state to come together and find ways to incentivize more industry activity, more industry investment in New South Wales, and all of the states are, are doing something similar. Um, you've obviously, DMTC has been working with the universities uh, through, throughout its history. So what are some observations that you can share with us around university engagement, researchers? What are we getting right? What, what, what do you think uh, we could do better? You ask, you know, what's our experience been? Our experience has been that we have had unquestionably some of the best researchers and it's just been a real privilege to be able to work with them. DMTC through a range of partners won a Eureka Prize for our armour program really early on in the piece. That involved ANSTO, it involved University of Wollongong, Melbourne University um, and, and any others that I've forgotten, I apologise. We've been, our capabilities being recognised very consistently with you know, airshow, land forces, um, then Pacific, Pride, National Innovation Prizes. Um, we've just, we were f- first and runner-up in the in the recent DST group um, Adstar Awards. I was there, congratulations. Thank you, yeah. Um, and it's great to be the one that stands up and accepts those, but of course the it's delivered by the researchers and it's, it's very, very difficult to give the, to, to be able to attract the best and the brightest if you can only give them a 12-month or an 18-month contract. We find that, the universities find that. The universities do not have the luxury anymore of, um, of being able to put somebody, to the same extent, to be able to put somebody on staff and, and work with you on those capability activities. So that's been a really significant change we've seen. Um, I think uh, my role on the Innovation Steering Group for Defence has shown that there are a lot of pressures on how defence can send the appropriate signals to the sector on the type of capability it needs. And I would say that there's probably a challenge with some of our university partners, and, and it's it's natural. I mean, I've just spent a few minutes talking about how DMTC is a specialist in doing this, and we learn new things every day. Universities are correctly, I think, picking up the signals that there are opportunities to get involved and perhaps even responsibilities to get involved in supporting the national security and defence outcomes for the country. But maybe they don't know how to do it, or they may think they do. And so there's been we've we've observed some really interesting differences in approach. There's the approach that University of New South Wales has taken with your good self and and the, the institute that you've set up. Others have hired an individual who might be really well connected, but you can't be well enough connected. I don't care who you are to have the the deep reach into all of the different elements of the organisation and then you've got this half-life of relevance if it's a recently retired service person, you know. So it's it's a very, we, we all do, it's, it's a very difficult nut to crack in terms of how do you bring that capability and the understanding of the capability requirements close to the thinking of some of the decision makers. You've also got the really significant challenge, which I, th- I still don't think we've, we've seen the high watermark of this one, the public or publish or perish problem. We just will not be able to publish everything that we that we do in in this sector. We just won't. And try telling a young researcher, we need you. We need your best and your brightest. Can you come and work for us for three or four years? By the way, you can't publish anything, and we can't guarantee you any funding, or we can't guarantee you that that certainty of a career path beyond this three or four year contract. 
what does that mean? It means they won't get rehired, or they're they're less likely to get rehired um, from a, you know a different job afterwards. So, and I know Tanya. You mentioned Tanya Monroe. I think she's really she's well across this, and and she's been I think terrific in saying there are some universities that we will partner with, and there are some that we won't. And to me, the clarion call for the universities is how do you get a genuine no BS view of what your capabilities are? Um, it's natural. I used to be an academic and, and you know, the self-interest or, you know, the putting food on the table, quite frankly, is, is one of the one of the key drivers. And I've seen a lot of Me Tooism around. You know, we, you'll see somebody come out in Defence Connect or the newspapers that, this entity got funded to do this and you say well I can do that too so I'm going to put in a an application and you've got people chasing each other it, it doesn't drive collaboration it drives competition a bit of competitions of course really useful but it doesn't drive that working together and that value chain handoff and, and that genuine understanding that that we have a really strong capability in this area and for us to succeed in supporting that national security outcome, we need to be working together with this university over there who has a complementary capability and we're not going to cannibalise each other. We're actually going to have a, a much more adult conversation. The The funding windows and the funding rules, I think, have made that a very, very difficult, very, very difficult area to address. So I think that's going to have to be ironed out yeah. before we get this right. One of the... Um one of the key elements of the Defence Trailblazer program that was awarded to Uni University of New South Wales and, and, and University of Adelaide is, is to change the culture around which academics are in incentivized to pivot towards defence. Yep. And, and so your comments about pu publish or perish are, are, are really good. And, and, and our intent through this program is to generate career paths such that those who pivot to defence and make real differences in terms of generating IP that is then uh, commercialized for competitive advantage, that they will be recognized, yeah. uh, uh, promoted, and, um, and, and continue uh, to move forward. And you'll start to develop a critical mass then, and the yeah. word will get out, and you'll be, that's, yeah. you'll be growing your own timber then. Yeah. And, and so I, 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 I really... talking I re about STEM opportunities yeah. for women, um, yeah. for, for people who may not have seen this as a viable career path and that'll start to yep. to grow out into the high schools and the secondary education yep. sector and, and you'll start to create that critical mass which is going to be absolutely critical that's the great endeavor i think that we've really embarked on together here um last question mark so yep. um you know we we hear of political scientists describing the 2020s as the consequential decade you know decisions that we're making today uh, will fundamentally drive the design of for the rest of this century um, whether it's climate, whether it's China, whether it's uh, Russia, Ukraine, y you name it. It's a really interesting world we, we live in. Um, you, you've described DMTC as a, as a dynamic, evolving, agile um, group that's made a difference, continuing to make a difference. So where do you see yourself, uh, or more fundamentally, where do you see DMTC in 10 or 15 years? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think the, the short answer really is wherever defence wants us and needs us. And I would then, of course, say that it's my job to make sure they understand what we can we can do for them and, and, and that there is an ongoing role for us. Um, you know, we'll, and you've, you pointed out, we've, we've 
evolve to an agile organisation. I think you have to. I think anybody in this business, whether it's defence or anything else, has to. No one's guaranteed a living, um, particularly in the innovation space. I think you have to understand the environment you're in. And at the end of the day, we're here, as I say, we, we, we protect them so they can protect us. We, we're here to... We, the, the warfighter has to be primal here. You know, they're, they're the ones that are the primary concern. And, and I think this the raise, train and sustain equation is, you know, really where does the innovation support that and, and finding new ways to understand how we can support that, communicate that capability into the, into the key stakeholders. Um, I think... We are now seeing, um, and we're, we're, we're in some discussions with Defence about how the future for DMTC will play out. Um, there are some areas where, and you've seen this with health security and medical countermeasures, we are, where we are effectively the agent for Defence in that. We've got DST people who are seconded in, who are staffed into DMTC. So Defence, again, maintains that sense of oversight, maintains that sense of, of line of sight into what we're doing. Um, we don't jump until they tell us to jump and then in which direction and how high. I mean, that's our role, is to support them. So we it's not our job to try to replace DST or, or replace... It, it's, they are the capability managers there. It's Tanya is the capability manager. Our job is to support that in the best way we can. So if I was to guess, I would say we'd probably see that model perhaps being replicated in a couple of other key areas. Um, DMTC and probably organisations like us being perhaps used as that next layer of the onion out, as those trusted intermediaries. Um, one of the key elements of DMTC is we're not for profit, so it's it's almost impossible. It's certainly very difficult, if not impossible, for us to deliver the capability to defence ourselves. And I think that gives us the ability, or gives defence the ability, to engage with us a bit more openly because we don't have that that profit motive, right. and we will go and find the right partner and then defence is still completely able to to select best value for, you know, for the taxpayer and those sorts of things. No one's compelled to buy anything off any of our partners. Our job is to give our partners the capability to make their best case in terms of the products and offerings that they sell. So in terms of where we go, I think that's that's where I would see it as probably we've been growing you know, somewhere around between... 9, 12, 13% per year in terms of you know program activity and those sort of things. There have been times where we thought that was going to come a little bit faster than, than it has, but there's been times where things like the pandemic where we were able to be leveraged very, very quickly. That's just the game we're in. That's the, that's the reality of the sector we, we work in and our job, as I said before, is to be ready when the call comes. One of the things I think, to your question around 2030, though, that is, is very important... Um, we are all casting our eyes to that horizon. There's, there's documents with 2030 written on them and there's AUKUS and there's the Brave New World with submarines and GUIO and these sorts of things. I think it's interesting how the pendulum swings. There's been times in the past where there's been criticism levelled at, at the sector and defence and, and various various organisations for, for not thinking strategically enough and just playing around with the here and now and why, why can't you see the value of a longer term investment in innovation in many ways we've, we've gotten past that we're now looking at the longer term value so I think really one of the key risks now is let's not forget the here and now hmm. let's not forget that you can't it's the old Irish taxi driver joke if that's where you want to get to I wouldn't start from here um, so, so let's make sure we're starting from the right position 
and that we've actually got a bit of momentum built up and you're not asking this sector to mobilise off a step change, off a a low base, and you've got to keep blood flow to the sector. And I'm really, really conscious of this sounding like we need more money. Of course, everybody would like that investment. It's just, it's not a clarion call for more dollars necessarily. What it is, is saying we've got to get the structures right and we need to understand where to direct that investment and making sure that, that the that the sector is moving with the customer and that the sector is available and understands, at least from a quadrant perspective, maybe not the exact target, but but we know which which area the target's going to come and and we can we can step into that solution space from a from a moving start rather than a than a standing start. Outstanding, Mark. Uh, thank you, um, and many thanks to all of you out there listening to our award-winning Defense Research Podcast. We will continue our conversations in future episodes with extraordinary defense-focused academics, transformational defense industry leaders like DMTC's Dr. Mark Hodge, and with those driving national security policy in Australia, all with a view of cementing defense research as an instrument of national power and of the increasingly important strategic imperative for industry, academia, and government to work as seamlessly as possible to accelerate the concept of sovereign defense capability cycle so that the future ADF operator and our allies and partners will sustain an all-domain competitive advantage across the spectrum of military operations. Thank you for your time. Good day. Thanks, Paul. If you'd like to know more about defense research at UNSW, visit the Defense Research Institute website at dri.unsw.edu.au. You can also follow the Defence Research Institute on LinkedIn and Twitter at UNSWDRI. Opinions expressed by individuals on the show are those of the individual unless stated otherwise. Defence Research is copyright of UNSW.